The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. Today we're going to discuss no man's land during World War I. There's also the Christmas truce in 1914. But what led to this great war, now called World War I? I consider it the great tragedy. It all began on July 28, 1914, when Australian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his beloved wife Sophie were in Bosnia and route via motor car to the residence of the provincial governor and provincial capital of Sarajevo. The couple traveled under a threatening cloud of danger. Despite repeated warnings and indications of possible violence by Serbian nationals and a clandestine offshoot called the Black Hen, the risk to the royal couple was either downplayed or simply ignored. An assassin had tossed a hand grenade in the direction of the couple earlier that morning, but exploded behind their vehicle, injuring the occupants in the following motor car. Undaunted, the royal couple motored on, completed their visit with the provincial governor, then demanded to be taken to the hospital to visit the injured men from the grenade attack. As fate would have it, the drivers were not informed of the itinerary change and took the wrong route. Once the mistake was realized, the royal couple's driver backed up onto a side street where the motorcade came to a halt. Now, one of the six members of the assassination squad, ironically, was seated at a cafe across the street. He was 19 years old. His name was Gorillo Pritzip, and he jumped at the opportunity. He crossed the street with a robber and opened fire. The Archduke died within minutes. His wife, Sophie, expired en route to the hospital. The cause of the Great War, later known as World War I, is generally blamed on the assassination of Archduke and his wife. True, their murders ignited anger and saber-rattling from numerous ethnic groups, kingdoms, countries, and suspicious religious and tribal alliances. But the little-discussed catalyst for the Great War can be found in the the turn-of-the-century military concept called mobilization. In 1914, the leaders of the era were not blessed with a hotline or any other quick avenues of communication. So-called rapid transportation back then was a smoke-belching train navigating perilous mountain passage or a rail-trap car bouncing along primitive, deeply rutted roads. Airplanes were considered a newfangled invention without a significant future as dependent means of transportation. Carrier pigeons were still winging messages to and fro, but by the time the pigeons flew their coop and landed in another coop, with any consultation overture wrapped around their skinny legs, the fog of war had changed dramatically. To protect borders, 
citizen, citizenry and government, the military machines of the era began what they had practiced for years, mobilization. An unstoppable buildup of men and material was moving into positions primed and ready. These were armies of unreliable trucks and airplanes, sluggish trains, old ancient generalship, and millions of horses, ornate and flamboyant dressed cavalrymen armed with lances would soon spur their steeds recklessly into nests of machine guns and die by the tens of thousands, including their steeds. Food, ammo, artillery, uniform, hay, saddles, shoes and horseshoes, medical equipment, gun belts, canteens, millions of officers and men all had to come together as fast as possible under near impossible criteria. They had to mobilize. When one panicky government heard through rumor mills or political grapevines that another country was mobilizing, then the urgent need to mobilize their own forces or be caught with their military pants down. Like an army of dominoes, the military machines fell in line until the officers and soldiers, even their horses, were at long last ready to fight. Problem was, on what battlefield? The German military was governed by the uh, Schefflin plant, the brainchild Count Alfred von Schefflin, using a huge weeding maneuver through neutral Belgium into the French frontier. The men and material needed for the plan to succeed would be enormous and require total loyalty to an overwhelming right flank stratagem. Schefflin's last words on his deathbed confessed his obsession, keep the right flank strong. So Germany hit first. The Great War was on. A modified Schefflin plan also kept the left flank strong, thus robbing the Germans of their much-desired swift victory. As Alfred von Schefflin turned over his grave, millions of soldiers dug thousands of miles of trenches and began dying by the thousands, then into the millions. The Great War was a massive killing field that could have prevented, and it could have been prevented, but the lack of communication and common sense turned the Great, the great War into the Great Tragedy. So thousands and then millions went gently into the good night. Passchendaele is one of many low elevations approximately five miles east of the Belgian town of Ephraim. On that gentle rise is Tynecott, the final resting place for thousands of young English soldiers. 12,000 boys are buried at Tynecott, Tynecott, victims of the third battle of Ypres. The cemetery also commemorates the 35 
thousand American doughboys that were never found after the battle. Two, the substantial monument at Epiphile, France, records the names of 73,000 missing soldiers from the Battle of the Somme. Casualties of that magnitude would be totally unacceptable in today's world. Yet the horrible killing was normal and unfortunately expected during the so-called Great War. The Great War was more commonly called World War I after Hitler invaded Poland in 1939 to instigate World War II. Over 35 million military participants fought in World War I. Of those 65 million participants, 9 million combatants would perish along with 7 million civilians. The last living veteran of World War I, a British subject named Florence Green, died on February 4, 2011, at the age of 110. An era had indeed slipped gently into the good night. But in December 1914, something strange yet wonderful happened on a piece of earth called No Man's Land between the trenches of World War II. What is this No Man's Land? Exactly what are we talking about? Well, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's exactly what it says. It's a land no man can claim. It's in dispute. Now, the British Army did not widely employ the term uh, no man's land when the regular army arrived in France in August of 1914, soon after the outbreak of World War One. The terms used most frequently at the start of the war to describe the area between the trench lines included between the trenches or between the lines. The term no man's land was first used in a military context by a soldier and historian named Ernest Swinton in his short story, The Point of View. Swinton used the term in war correspondence on the Western Front with specific mention of the terms with respect to the race to the sea in late 1914. The race to the sea with the Germans and the French and English digging trenches all the way from the Swiss border uh, to the uh, English Channel. The Anglo-German Christmas Truce of 1914 brought the term into common use, and thereafter it appeared frequently in official communiques, newspaper reports, and personnel uh, correspondence of the members of the British Expeditionary Force. In World War I, no man's land often ranged from several hundred yards to, in some cases, less than 10 yards. Imagine that, less than 10 yards away from your enemy. Heavily defended by machine guns, mortars, artillery, and rifle on both sides, it was often extensively cratered and was riddled with barbed wire, rudimentary improvised landmines, as well as corpses and wounded soldiers who were unable to make it through the hell of bullets, explosions, and flames. The area was sometimes contaminated by chemical weapons. 
It was open to fire from the opposing trenches and hard going, generally slowed by any attempted advance. Not only were soldiers forced to cross no man lands when advancing, and as as the case might be when retreating, but after the attack, the stretcher bearers had to enter it to bring in the wounded. No man's land remained a regular feature of the battlefield until near the end of World War One, when mechanized weapons like tanks made entrenched lines less of an obstacle. Effects from World War One. No man's land still persists today. For example, at Verdun in France, it's called the Red Zone. It contains unexplored ordnance and is poisoned beyond habitation by arsenic and chlorine from chemical weapons. The zone is sealed off completely and still deemed too dangerous for civilians to return. The air is still considered to be very poison, so the French government planted an enormous forest of black pines. It's been compared to the nuclear disaster site at Chernobyl in Russia. No man's land was indeed a place that no man wanted to be. But something strange happened in December of 1914, and we'll be getting that in our second segment. Uh, Let's take our first break, and I'll be right back. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, folks, this is Victor Armendariz with the On Point with Victor show right here from the America's Web Radio studios with some great news. You need to mark your calendars December 23rd, and that's a Thursday. From 12 to 3, I will be guest hosting for the Eric Erickson Show. That's the nationally syndicated Eric Erickson Show, your humble host right here from America's Web Radio, On Point with Victor. I will be guest hosting for the Eric Erickson Show from 12 to 3, December 23rd, and that's a Thursday. Mark it down. The America's Broadcast Network.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, I'm back with you. We're talking about No Man's Land and the Christmas Truce of 1914. You know, when governments can no longer manage their international responsibilities, militaries are sent to wage the necessary war to restore failed politics. In order to bring the hostilities to a close, the same politicians must perceive a face-saving solution or event to protect their own political livelihoods. 
if no such solution or incident materializes, then young men and women continue to fight and they continue to die. I guess in down-to-earth terms, governments and politicians fight their verbal wars without shedding their own blood, but will happily spill the blood of others to achieve their diplomatic goals. Maybe Carl Sandburg hit the nail on the head in 1936 when he said, sometime they'll give a war and nobody will come. On December 7th, 1914, Pope Benedict XV had begged for an official truce between the warring governments. He asked that the guns may fall silent at least on the night the angels sang. The governments on both sides refused his request. However, as Christmas approached in 1914, the soldiers in the trenches on both sides of the western and even the eastern front came awfully close to calling game over, not from strategic victories, but an impromptu Christmas meeting in the pitiful waste of no man's land. The off-the-cuff Christmas truce most likely started near Plowextry uh, Wood in Belgium. The Great War was less than five months old. Many soldiers held hope the Christmas season would give pause for the politicians and generals to rethink the apocalypse of a world war. Tens of thousands of soldiers were already dead, and the stalemate of trench warfare had given birth to some of the most appalling living and fighting conditions ever known to warring humanity. The land between the opposing trenches, in many cases less than 100 yards and down to 10 yards, was called, as I have discussed previously, no man's land. Heavy artillery dudes had churned no man's land into twisted bobbed wire and large rain-filled craters. Most of the terrain was void of vegetation. Decomposing corpses of young men either floated or sank into the filthy craters. Chilly rain had curled the earth into knee-deep liquefied mud. The trenches were even worse. No more than reinforced ditches. Trench life included damp and miserable men, fleas, rats, and lice. Men deloused themselves by roasting lice in the flame of a candle. The chronic stench of the trenches resulted from the lack of latrines, decaying bodies, fire, liquor, and even cats. The first contacts between the belligerents were the burial parties. Men on both sides approached with white flags of truce or with hands raised to ask permission to bury their dead. In the spirit of Christmas, or maybe in the shared faith of warring Christians, the burial parties assisted each other with this unpleasant task. Snow fell on the 23rd. The temperature dropped. Mush turned into solid footing. A tannin bomb, that's German for Christmas tree, appeared on a German parapet. 
more German Christmas trees appeared on parapets with candles affixed to their fur limbs by clamps. A British soldier heard a German shout in perfect English, Come over here! The British soldier screamed back, Come over here yourself! With that awkward invitation, echoed by other ab-lib invitations along the Western Front, the Christmas truce found a foothold. Germanic voices drifted across no, no man's land with versions of Silent Night or Holy Night or some of their deeply cherished Christmas hymns. The other side responded with English versions. Foodstuffs were tossed from one trench to the other. One German finally ignored sporadic gunfire to dare a walk with a lighted cannon bomb, a Christmas tree, to the middle of no man's land as a peace offering. Soldiers on both sides left their trenches. Curious yet cautious, one war inside of British, French, Scots, Gurkhas, Irish, and Indians met the other side of Germans from Saxon, Bavaria, and other Germanic cultures in no man's all along the Western Front. Not all units participated. Others did with vigilance, but history records of soldiers of two warring armies meeting in the middle of a great war, in the middle of a great battlefield, in the middle of no man's land. One German soldier refused to participate. He asked of his compatriots, Have you no German sense of honor left? He was baptized a Catholic. He rejected all religious observances, never received mail or parcels, never smoked nor drank, never spoke of family and friends, and fretted alone for days on end. The unbalanced soldier served as a field messenger in the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment. His rank was that of a corporal. His name was Adolf Hitler. Elsewhere, German and British officers exchanged pleasantries, cut off butts from their uniforms to serve as souvenirs, and discussed the latest news from both fronts. A German officer in one sector stated, We'll be relieved by the Prussians. Give them hell. We hate them. Few of the British soldiers spoke German, but an abundance of German soldiers spoke limited English, having worked in England before the war as waiters or cab drivers. Cigarettes and cigars were exchanged. The English offered apple and plum pudding, plus tins consisting of meat, potatoes, beans, and other vegetables. Now the Germans, to everyone's delight, throwed out barrels of beer. The German sausage was an enjoyable treat. In one sector, the befuddled rabbit dashed out of a cabbage patch. A German-English soldier gave chase for the potential meal. The German won. Word was received in another sector that a general nicknamed Old Horseflesh was making a rare appearance on the front to inquire about rumors of fraternization 
both sides hustled back to the trenches. Now, the Germans, as a lark, evidently they had a good sense of humor, placed a trestle table in the middle of no man's land with a bowl of goldfish on top. Upon his arrival, Old Horseflash complained of fraternization along the lines and stated, among other things, this is disgraceful. We can't interrupt a war for freedom just because of Christmas. Have you anything to report? A captain replied, A bit of a puzzle, sir. It seems the enemy has put up a table in no man's land with a bowl of goldfish on top of it. Using his binoculars, old horseflesh peeped over the parapet. He said, they are goldfish, by God. What kind of devilish trick are the Huns up to? Send out a patrol tonight to investigate. Well, the captain did, but he met with his German counterpart to barter for the goldfish. The Englishman won the, the, the bartering, and the bowl of goldfish was sent back to the rear for evaluation by intelligence. Now, depending on the sector, the Christmas truce lasted two to three days with teams from both sides taking part in soccer games on the frozen mud. Various items served as a soccer ball, including tied-up sandbags. Goals were made with hats, later enlarged with tunics and greatcoats as the players warmed up a little bit. It was still freezing. Some teams kept score. Others didn't. All the games were referred to as contests of part soccer and part ice skating. I can imagine. There's a young soldier named Bruce Barnes' father who fought through the war, and he wrote of this encounter. I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of a lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimidated him that I had taken a fancy some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and, with a few deft snips, removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. The last I saw was one of my machine gunners who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civilian, civilian life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a very calm German who was parsing leaning on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. That must have been some sight watching a British soldier cut a German's hair in the middle of no man, no man's land, exchanging buttons, drinking beer, I don't know, just like good old men in a bar. And then later they would start killing each other again. Folks, it's time for our second break. I'll be back in just a couple minutes. Stay with me. I got another, some other quotes from the Christmas front and then some closing comments. Stay with us. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. 
You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The views, opinions, and content of the show's hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey, folks, this is Victor Armendariz with the On Point with Victor show right here from the America's Web Radio Studios with some great news. You need to mark your calendars December 23rd, and that's a Thursday. From 12 to 3, I will be guest hosting for the Eric Erickson Show. That's the nationally syndicated Eric Erickson Show, your humble host right here from America's Web Radio, On Point with Victor. I will be guest hosting for the Eric Erickson Show from 12 to 3, December 23rd, and that's a Thursday. Mark it down. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, let's return to No Man's Land and the Christmas Truce of 1914. There was a uh, Captain Sir Edward Huesley. He reported how the first interpreter he met from the German lines was actually from Suffolk, England, and he had Complaining, complaining about how he had to leave his girlfriend in England, but was he, he was more disappointed that he also had to leave his 2.5-horsepower motorcycle in England. Now, Captain Hussey described a sing-song uh, in these words. It ended up with old, ang- uh, sorry, old anxiety, which we all, English, Scots, Irish, Prussians, Bavarians, joined in. It was absolutely astounding. There was a Captain Robert Miles. He was with the King's Shoshire Light Infantry who was attached to the Royal Irish Rifles. Now he recalled in an edited letter which was published in the Daily Mail and the Wellington Journal and News in 1915, in January of 1915. You see, Captain Miles was killed in action on 30 December. But on Christmas Day, he said, we are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable, a sort of unarranged and quite unauthorized, but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is... It only seems to exist in this part of the battle line. To our right and left, we can all hear them firing away as cheerfully as ever. The thing started last night, a bitter cold night with white frost. Soon after dusk, when the Germans started shouting, Merry Christmas, Englishmen! And we shouted back. Of course, our fellows did shout back, and presently large numbers of both sides 
had left their trenches unarmed and met in the fatable, shot-ridden no-man's land between the lines. Here, the agreement, all our own, came to be made that we should not fire at each other until after midnight tonight. The men were all fraternizing in the middle. We naturally did not have them too close to our lines, but we swapped cigarettes and lies in the utmost good fellowship. Not a shot was fired all night. Now, he said of the Germans, they are distinctly bored with the war. In fact, one of them wanted to know what on earth we are doing here fighting them. The truce in that sector continued in the Boxing Day. He commented about the Germans, the beggars simply disregard all our warnings to get down off their parapet so things are at a deadlock. We can't shoot them in cold blood. I cannot see how we can get them to return to business. Quite incredible. On Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, 24 and 25 December 1914, Alfred Anderson's unit of the 1st, 5th Battalion of the Black Watch was billeted in a farmhouse away from the front. In a later interview, yeah, in 2003, Anderson, the last known and surviving Scottish veteran of the war, vividly recalled Christmas Day and said this, I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. Only the guards were on duty. We went outside the farm buildings and just stood listening. And, of course, thinking of people back home. All I heard for two months in the trenches was the hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in flight, machine gun fire, and distant German voices. But there was a dead silence that morning, right across the land as far as you could see. We shouted Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt very merry. The silence ended early in the afternoon, and the killing started again. It was a short peace in a terrible war. A German lieutenant, Johns Neumann, wrote, I grabbed my binoculars and looking cautiously over the parapet, saw the incredible sight of our soldiers exchanging cigarettes, schnapps, and chocolate with the enemy. Unbelievable. There were so many stories of, of uh, brotherhood. They, they swapped cognac. Uh, they swapped cigarettes for pumpernickel, you know, the black bread, biscuits, and ham. Some of the men even remained friends after the Christmas truce was over. Among the shattered trees and ground plowed up by shell fire, was a wilderness of earth, tree roots and tattered uniforms. These men got together and together decided, hey, let's not kill each other. It's Christmas. I guess we can kill each other later. That is quite amazing. It is has been reported that and identified that there were 29 different football games, basically soccer, on Christmas Day. 
Now, on the eastern front, it wasn't quite as cheerful, but the first move originated from Austro-Hungarian commanders at some uncertain level of the military hierarchy, but the Russians responded positively, and the soldiers eventually met in no man's land. Uh, I just still find it so amazing that, that this has happened. In, in another sector, a short cruise to bury the dead between the lines led to repercussions. A company commander, Sir Island Coquit, of the Scott Guards, was court-martialed for, deny, for denying standing orders to the contrary. Now, uh, the commander was found guilty, and he was reprimanded. However, the punishment was annulled by the American general, uh, Douglas Haig. Uh, this was after the American troops got there, though. And Colker remained in his position. Uh, perhaps the official leniency may have been perhaps because his wife, his wife's uncle, was the British prime minister. There have been monuments erected as Christmas truce memorials. One was unveiled in France on November 11, 2008. At the spot where their regimental ancestors came out of their trenches to play football on Christmas Day, 1914, men from the 1st Battalion, the Royal Welch Fusiliers, played a football match with the German Battalion 371. The Germans won 2-1. to one. On 12 December 2014, 100 years after the, the first meeting on the no man's land, the memorial, uh, memorial was unveiled at the National Memorial in Shepherdshire, England, by Prince William, Duke of Cambridge, and the England national football team manager, Roy Hodgson. This football remembers memorial was the designed by Spencer Turner, a 10-year-old schoolboy. And there is a place in Rockford, Illinois, called Midway Village, and it hosts reenactments of the Christmas truce. I think this is an important part of history that people need to know. Uh, I think one... Uh, uh, famous person once stated that soldiers don't really fight because what is in front of them, they don't really hate what is in front of them. They fight because they love what is behind them. Read you one more thing here. A 19-year-old private from the London Rifle Brigade wrote to his mother right after Christmas. Dear Mother, I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a coke fire. Opposite me, a dugout with straw in it. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench, but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe represented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say. But wait. In the pipe is German tobacco. 
Aha, you say. From a prisoner or found in a captured trench? Oh, dear, no. From a German soldier? Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches and exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all day Christmas Day and as I write. Marvelous, isn't it? Indeed. You know, the Christmas truce was destined to fail. There was a war going on. And when wars take place, there's not too much time for fraternizing with your enemy. The only time you fraternize with them is when there's some kind of a conference or peace conference trying to end the killing. A lot of the units were punished for the Christmas troops, truce. They were jerked from the eastern, uh, western front from France and sent to the eastern front where the likelihood for survival was much less. Officers were relieved of duty. There were threats of not to do it again or you might get shot. Units from both sides were relieved or replaced by normal rotation. That included the Germans. Governments on both sides forbade further fraternization with threats of court-martials and or executions. Newspapers ran the so-warming stories. Higher-ups denied that fraternization had occurred. History proves that the hierarchy were a bunch of liars. Then came four more years of slaughter. Millions would perish, perhaps not to determine the winter, but only who survived. I want to read something by Scottish poet Frederick Niven. Oh, ye who read this truthful rhyme from Flanders, Mill and Say, God spread the time when every day shall be a Christmas day. You know, folks, uh, I went through uh, two Christmases in Vietnam. We did the best we could over there, and I guess for a war zone, we did very well. There were trees and there were packages from home. Uh, we had a decent Christmas considering we were in a war zone. But I can tell you one thing, we sure as heck didn't fraternize with the Viet Cong nor the North Vietnamese. Not at any place I know of it anyway. Away from home for Christmas in a war zone, it's lonely, it's sad, makes you homesick. But at least you are there with some brothers and sisters who have the same pain that you do about not being home with your loved ones for the greatest day of the year. Okay, uh, I'll be right back after a couple of minutes. Please stay with me. Hey, folks, this is Victor Armendariz with the On Point with Victor show right here from the America's Web Radio Studios with some great news. You need to mark your calendars December 23rd, and that's a Thursday. From 12 to 3, I will be guest hosting for the Eric Erickson Show. That's the nationally syndicated Eric Erickson Show, your humble host right here from America's Web Radio, On Point with Victor. I will be guest hosting for the Eric Erickson Show from 12 to 3, December 23rd, and that's a Thursday. Mark it down. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, I'm back with you. You know, I was talking about uh, away, being away from home for Christmas and Christmas truces. Um, and the folks home, the folks at home. What about the folks at home in December of 1914? Were they aware of this Christmas truth? Were they aware that the soldiers from both sides got together and shook hands and had some German beer and German sausage and traded food tins and played soccer? The truces along the Western Front were not reported for a week. An unofficial press embargo broken by the New York Times, published in the then-neutral United States on 31 December, sort of broke the news. The British papers quickly followed, printing numerous first-hand accounts from soldiers in the field, taken from letters home to their families and editorials on one of the greatest surprises of a surprising war. By 8 January, pictures had made their way to the press, and the mirror and the sketch printed front-page photos of British and German troops mingling and singing between the lines. The tone of reporting was strongly positive, with the New York Times endorsing the lack of malice felt by both sides in the British mirror regretting that the absurdity and the tragedy would soon begin again. Author Dennis Winter argues that the censor had intervened to prevent information about the spontaneous ceasefire from reaching the public and that the real dimension of the truce only really came out after a captain in the Telegraph wrote something about it after the war. Now, coverage in Germany was more muted, with some newspapers strongly criticizing those who had taken part, and no pictures were published. In France, press censorship ensured that the only word that spread of the truce came from soldiers at the front 
are first-hand accounts told by wounded men in hospitals. The press was eventually forced to respond by the growing rumors by reprinting a government notice that fraternizing with the enemy constituted treason. In early January, an official statement on the truce was published, claiming that it was restricted to the British sector on the front and amounted to little more than exchange of songs, which quickly de- degenerated into shooting. My goodness, fake news in 1914. Who would have ever thought? Uh, there's something I learned in the intelligence uh, train that I went, I went through, something about don't believe anything you re- read or hear, and only half of what you see. I guess that was still true way back in 1914. You know, as you and your family and friends celebrate the birth of Christ, try to take pause to remember the thousands of American soldiers, airmen and sailors, far from home celebrating Christmas alone, or perhaps with their brotherhood and our sisterhood. They are there for you, for your protection, and to protect America and what she stands for. You know, bitter forces have tried to divide this great nation, yet great people find a way to defeat division, either peacefully or by confrontation. This Christmas, we must take time to cherish all we have yet acknowledge all that we have to lose. Peace, love, and grace are the goals. Confrontation is the last resort. General old horse flesh still haunts the battlefields of young dead. But there still exists peace-loving factions willing to congregate in no man's land for a shared meal, a mutual Christmas carol, a kindly word, a game of soccer, maybe even let the kids chase a rabbit around the backyard. Folks, we must resurrect no man's land. There has got to be neutral ground somewhere that we can get together. I didn't support the man for president and didn't approve too much of his politics, but I did uh, respect the man, former Senate and presidential candidate Hubert Humphrey. He was liberal back when liberals uh, were still Americans. (laughs) He said, and I quote, If I believe in something, I will fight for it with all I have. But I do not demand all or nothing. I would rather get something than nothing. Professional liberals want the fiery debate. They glory in their own defeat. The hardest job for politicians today is to have the courage to be a moderate. It is easy to take an extreme position. 
I think the most extreme position we discussed today was artillery falling on the heads of warring soldiers, snipers shooting people, men running through a barren no-man's land straight in the machine gun mess, which proved to be a slaughter. And this went on for four years. There really weren't any peace overtures. It just, the, the fighting just continued on and on. Nobody knew how to break the deadlock of all this trench warfare. It just went on and on. So many thousands of fine young men wasted on these battlefields. And that Gallipoli also, uh, on the Eastern Front with the Russians, there were, there were battles everywhere on the European continent that cost so many lives for what? Think about it. What was World War One fought over? Was it the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, as so many believe? Or was it just the result of armies mobilizing with all their nice dress uniforms, flowery hats, uh, the beautiful helmets they had back then, the shiny spears on their horses. All these things were mobilizing for what? For fear that the other enemy would strike first. A lack of communication, a lack of common sense, and millions would perish. Folks, that no man's land is so important today for us to find a way to put down the rifles, to put down the rhetoric, to put down the threats, to put down the name-calling, to stop the absurdity that we see going on in our country. And as Hubert Humphrey said, find the courage to be a moderate. It is so easy to take an extreme position. Political scientists... That's my degree in college. Political scientists call it when people reach a, a point when they will no longer negotiate. You hear that from OAC and Congress, right? We don't want to negotiate. We want our way, our way only. When somebody refuses to at least listen to the opposing view, that's called reaching their ultimate value. When you reach your ultimate value, you will not talk, you will not debate. You cannot be persuaded that there may be a better way or a different way to approach a subject. I suppose if we don't find no man's land again, there is not going to be too much peace in our country, which is sad. And I have said this before, and I will say it again. It really doesn't matter who wins the 2024 presidential election. That will be the election that will determine the future of America. If the Democrats win, I think, in my personal opinion, that America as we know it is over. If the Republicans win... I think that we are going to see an acceleration of the rights and the violence 
the cities being burned, attacks on police officers. And that, too, will change America as we know it. God bless the people who still wave the flag, carry the Bible, tote those guns. God bless the people who want their kids educated instead of indoctrinated. God bless the United States of America, and God bless our troops overseas, especially on this Christmas holiday season. They miss home. They miss their loved ones. They wish they weren't where they are, but they are. And who are they doing it for? They're doing it for you. They sure don't get paid a lot of money to do it either. They may have food and shelter, but until you've been in combat, until you know your life depends on the man or woman standing next to you, you truly understand the cost of freedom. No man's land. Is that where we want to be? Or isn't that where we want to be? I think we better find that desolate land where nobody owns it. And we better sit down, share a beer, and say, you know, isn't there a way we can do this? Isn't there a way that we can get our country back to the way it's supposed to be? To life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Let's find that no man's land, folks. Time is short. But I wish you a very Merry Christmas. And remember the reason for the season. God bless everybody, and God bless America. Talk to you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.